This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Phil Priest from Moreland City Council. Phil is a planner with over 20 years of experience across local and state government in Victoria. Phil was awarded the Paul Jerome Award by VEPLA in 2021. VEPLA instituted this award in 2005 in memory of VEPLA board member Paul Jerome. The award is part of VEPLA's commitment to encouraging, recognising and supporting work in public administration. The purpose of the award is to recognise outstanding contribution to public service in the image of Paul Jerome. The citation for this award noted Phil's contribution to planning in the public sector, which has been enormous. He has led many planning initiatives in Moreland, including the Moreland Department Design Code prior to the introduction of the Better Apartment Design Standards, the introduction of the ESD policy in the Moreland Planning Scheme, and more recently, initiatives to reduce emissions. Phil has lent his considerable skills to public sector planning, mentoring, and has achieved so much for his community. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Pete. Pleasure to be here. Now, is there anything in that introduction that I've missed about your background and experience? Um, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, no, I think that that covered it quite well. Thanks, Phil. Do you want to tell us how you got to where you are in two minutes? Yeah, sure. So, um, oh, back in the late eighties, I I started planning at. Um, RMIT, graduated in 1990 and um, took off overseas for a few months and um, having um, completed a bit of travel, came back and we were in the middle um, of a recession at, at that time and many of my um, student cohort um, had found positions and I find, found myself after a couple of months um, facing either moving, uh, moving away from family and friends up to I think Swan Hill had a position and the, the Alexandra Shire had a position in planning. Um, but I was fortunate in that a position actually came up in planning enforcement at the City of Melbourne um, on the back of doing a presentation to planning students at RMIT. And one of those students, Stuart Menzies, um, mentioned that presentation and um, I got a call from, from the City of Melbourne. and. Uh, so I grabbed that because it meant I could stay at home, I could work at the City of Melbourne, it was all really convenient. Look, it gave me a really good grounding, I think, in my first year or so in planning. Um, got to know Melbourne really well, moved into a statutory planning role, and I ended up staying at Melbourne for, I think, in the order of 12 years, um, both in um, senior statutory and, and strategic planning and, and major projects roles. Um, Within, within the organisation. And um, I, I still look fondly back on that time at Melbourne, but even, I guess, having um, progressed to the, to the height, I think, of my technical career there, um, that, and, and all the great city shaping projects that you got to deal with at Melbourne, um, probably led me more into then looking at new challenges and, and moving into and leadership and continuous improvement and how you can make the life of a planner easier um, and focus on what's really important. And so I made the move over to, to City of Moreland. So I moved a bit further north um, over, over Brunswick Road um, with a plan that given my commute from where I was then living, I would be there for about two years to get some leadership experience. Um, but I became the manager there. I went into a, a team leader position and um, within a few months I was appointed as the manager. Um, and I've stayed there ever since. So it's, it's coming up, up on um, two decades with the one organisation. Um, but it's been amazing to work for an organisation that pushes the boundaries, that allows you now, to innovate. Now, now uh, Phil, before you yep. pump it up too much, yep. um, Moreland for our listeners is just north of the Melbourne CBD. It's known as the People's Republic of Moreland. It's a, uh, you've heard that, of course. It, right. it's, a, yeah, it's a fairly progressive uh, in a city uh, location. Yep, fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Yeah, and and it did have um, that. Uh, that was a bit before my time, the People's Republic of Moreland, and it, and it came out of um, council amalgamations and a fairly progressive first council um, um, at Moreland at that time. 
particular Mayor Mike, Mike Hill, um, who pushed the ESD agenda well before its time. Um, but it stuck, it stuck with the organisation for uh, probably, yeah, coming up on three decades, uh, probably now, or um, two and a half. Um, but they, they've continued that tradition of looking to do things better, um, looking to get great environmental outcomes and great building outcomes. So a pleasure to work there, really rewarding. Um, I actually took a break though last year and, and took a secondment into state government um, as Director of Development Approvals and Design at DELP. Um, so I got to work closely um, briefing the Minister um, on, again, major, major development, um, not only within the city of Melbourne, but across the state. Um, the push um, for as part of Victoria's big housing build um, to fund and approve affordable housing um, throughout the state. Got to do a bit of work in my own backyard down here in, in Geelong with the development that's occurring there and the Minister's responsibilities there. Um, and also the Minister's responsibilities for um, major environmental um, initiatives of you know, wind farms, big batteries, uh, major solar farms, which is incredibly interesting having spent most of my, my career in inner um, in Melbourne. Um, so that's me in a nutshell, I think. Now, Phil, um, in the introduction before, we mentioned the um, Paul Jerome Award. Did you know Paul personally and do you have any recollections? Yeah, look, early in my career, um, I had the pleasure of meeting Paul um, a number of times, mainly at probably VPLA events. Um, so at their annual dinner, which was a much more much smaller affair in the probably the mid to late nineties, and um, so I never actually worked with Paul, but um, always found him really engaging, really open, happy to have a chat at those events. Um, and I did have a little bit of work um, with Paul um, during my early years at Moreland when uh, we had a few. He was heading up the priority development panel. Um, within within state government at that time, and we had a few major projects um, that went before that panel. And you know, he lived up to all expectations of being really engaging, um, great to deal with, and really just focused on on good outcomes. Um, so, you know, in, I had nothing but really good dealings with Paul. And when um, when I was informed um, shortly after. Um, just finishing up as common at Delp and, and coming back to, to Moreland um, to backfill an exec planning position. And I let the CEO and the executive team know that um, I just got a call as one of those um, um, team check-ins really of how we're all going during COVID and one of those morning just touch-ins on what's going on this week, et cetera. Um, and one of the other members of the executive team um, Anita, who heads up our city infrastructure area, was with Vic Roads um, for, for many, many years. Um, so another arm of, of government, but she mentioned that, you know, she knew of Paul and she knew of his legacy and that how everybody in, in state um, looked up to him and admired him. So um, that was really interesting to hear, you know, from, an, from another agency of government that um, he was held in such great regard. And what does the award mean to you? Um, I'm, look, I'm, I'm really honoured um, to have received the award. It was a total surprise to get the call from um, Beeple President Tamara Bretzi um, after a really busy, busy year um, at Delp and, um, and, you know, another year of, of COVID really where we all expected we would be out of lockdowns and you know, I had full, full expectations of back to coffees and lunches in the city with um, and networking with all the folks at Delp and it turned into eight months on screen um, in, in, in Zoom meetings. Um, so it was just lovely that um, the VPLA board and VPLA had recognised, you know, my efforts um, both at the City of Melbourne and, and um, at the time at Moreland in looking to innovate and, and drive improvement and get great outcomes. So um, mainly, mainly the surprise of it, I guess. And when I look at who, um, who the award's been granted to um, before me. Um, you know, I'm really, really humbled and honoured um, to be amongst those names and, and part of that recognition. For, for our Australian listeners, it's a bit like the Brownlow Award <clears throat> with uh, football. <laughs> but um, uh, Moreland, Phil, uh, can you, if I describe Moreland as being 
inner city north, uh, used to have a very strong industrial base, has, has got a number of strip centres, commercial centres, like where tram lines run down the middle and there's lots of little shops. It had a, a very high um, <clears throat> migrant, immigrant community. Uh, and that's all changed or it, it's changing at a fast rate. Is that fair? Could you tell us some of the big issues in Moreland and not just Moreland, but inner city, uh, Melbourne, and I'm sure other cities have got the same issues. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, many of the things will be common and some of the things are always unique to place. Um, you've described it really well, Peter. It's um, inner to middle ring suburban Melbourne, directly north, very multicultural continues to be, although, you know, that's changed from um, initial Greek Italian migrant population um, through to a variety of, of different nationalities and, and, um, and so really multicultural, strong industrial past. Going way back um, was the source of much of the brick making that built Melbourne in the in the late 1800s. So we have a legacy of, of brickworks, large clay pits that are now public open space, um, having been landfill many, many years ago, but left us with some great public open space. Um, and being that in a city, a real mix of residential, cheek by jowl with in smaller industrial and warehouses, warehousing, and some great heritage, um, home of, um, Melbourne or Victoria's first um, penal um, establishment of Pentridge Prison in Coburg, in, you know, from the 1800s through to the late 90s when it closed. And I, and I st it still blows my mind that it didn't close until the, the late 90s when you see the accommodation um, that was provided on that really important heritage site. Um, so the usual pressures of inner city, um, population growth is the, is the major challenge. Um, and a council with great ambition for a, a better environmental future. So um, ESD is part of the DNA at, at Moreland as our better, better outcomes, um, whether it be better accessibility, um, um, great built form, um, great heritage outcomes. Um, I guess in terms of um, what are some of the principal planning issues? It really is that dealing with managing population growth. Phil, I, I don't know about you or Jess, but when I drive around inner city Melbourne and other cities, I see a lot of very ordinary mid-rise apartment buildings. Uh, have we left the ball slip there? What do you think? Um, so, yeah, I think part of the, part of the challenge for Moreland has been just keeping pace with what's been two decades of rapid population growth um, and an evolving planning system. Um, we, as this smaller Northern municipality of 51 square kilometers, we have received um, year on year, the second or third highest number of planning applications in the state. And that's been um, both a factor in relation to the amount of medium density infill of larger um, blocks in the middle and um, middle ring suburbs of interwar dwellings on 800 to 1,000 square metre or 700 square metre blocks with um, an interwar two bedroom weatherboard on it, um, which are really ripe for development and have seen a lot of development over the last 20 years, as well as those corridors that you spoke spoke about Pete that are you know ideally located along train lines and, and tram lines um, with older building stock that was also right for development. Um, so we've seen a lot of growth and part of the challenge at Moreland has been keeping pace with that growth. Um, you know sometimes we would have increases in application numbers for the planning team. Um, I think the most significant was upon the introduction of new residential zones and we had a 45% increase in applications, but 20% wasn't uncommon. So the challenge has been how to be as efficient and, and as lean as we can be to better influence that development. Um, but I would all also say that um, my experience has seen the difference between the um, land ownership 
and development teams that I regularly dealt with at the City of Melbourne um, and the resourcing of those teams um, and the ability to deliver great design um, and fund great quality materials um, to the standard of, of some of the applications at Moreland, which were far more challenging, I think, um, without any dispersions on on you know particular people, I think it's just a factor of a difference. No, 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 Phil, speak freely. You can name names on our podcast, but but I wanted to. Oh, you know, you said there was a big increase when they changed the residential zoning of applications, but doesn't that go to one of the problems we have in our planning system? Is that uh, if you need to do up your shoes, you need a planning permit in a lot of places, but the big important things don't get the resources. So. You're a, you're a manager, you're a director, El Supremo. It, it's all about allocating scarce resources. There is a view that a lot of stuff doesn't need, requires a planning permission that really shouldn't. And that ties up a lot of resources that can't be allocated to, you know, more public good type issues. You got any thoughts about that? Um, yes, certainly. Um... There's a lot of truth in that. Um, there's also, I, th I think, a real um, need to continuously improve what we do. Um, you know, at Moreland, I think we've fared pretty well. You know, there has been those challenges, but we have been able to, through, you know, continuous improvements uh, also. Uh, Phil, you're not at a council meeting. Answer the question. <laughs> well, continuous improvement has been part of our DNA. So, Boy, yeah, well, spare, we had growth. Spare, spare our listeners this sort of... <laughs> They don't, they don't listen to us to hear this sort of garb. He doesn't Please. hold back. <laughs> you know, we have absolutely had to look at what can we, what can we do away with? You know, it can't always be an answer of more resources, um, but to to um, I guess going to bat for those scarce resources, we have had to prove um, that you know we've we've innovated, we've done away with what hasn't um, added value. Um, and that was efficient as we can be. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's a challenge for many organisations, I think. And it's only one that's getting harder, Pete, with, and Jess, with, um, you know, with rate capping and, and scarcer resources and, and shifting of resources um, from, um, from state to, um, to local government. So it's a continuing challenge. And what about reflection on um, previously approved buildings? Do, do you and your team um, at any point during the year go out and look at some of the buildings that have been um, approved and constructed throughout Moreland and, you know, go through a bit of a reflection process on what, what everyone actually thinks about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been something that um, has stayed with me from my early planning career of the value learning that comes from that. And we do that with councillors too. Um, we do that as part of induction and we'll do it um, during the term to have a look at well, what were the outcomes and what were some of the decisions. And I think it's just really valuable, valuable learning. Um, we've also done things over the years. We, we partnered with Darabin and did a post apartment um, um, survey of um, persons that were living in, in higher density, medium density development to get the views of how they found the transition from lower density development, what would they what would they like to see more of, what they like to see less of. Um, I don't think you can do enough of that really. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. What about urban design? I'm interested in your thoughts because, you know, what, what Pete was saying before about some of those inner city um, uh, strip shopping areas, particularly through Moreland, that you know, some of them, some of them are fantastic and some others, you know, as, as we do throughout all of Melbourne have some interesting architecture. <laughs> is urban design input something that you value highly in all applications or is it going back to your point about um, scarcity of resources? Is it about allocating those resources to the applications that need more input in that regard? 
Um, yeah, both. Um, I mean, the City of Moreland does have an expert urban design team that inputs to all high density applications. Um, super valuable um, through the work at City of Melbourne and, and something that um, it's been pleasing to maintain through, through the years at Moreland. Um, what probably did lag for some time there was the capacity, you know, when we're talking about second, third highest number of applications in the state, the majority of that being medium and high density um, and 50% of what's been, what has been delivered at Moreland has been um, medium density and the other 50% high density in terms of new dwellings. So very, very split. It was probably the medium density that, that suffered um, from, from that question of resources, but that was corrected with the last council meeting, with uh, last term of council, with um, a real push on design quality. Um, probably hearing back from the community, and I don't know if you were one of those, Peter, in terms of what what community was seen. I, I, I can't afford the People's Republic of Moreland. Anyway, sorry, Phil, keep going. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it is interesting what incoming councils hear from community. And, and for us, it was um, a bit of a um, eye-opener in that, you know, we knew we were working really hard with our urban design team and with our ESD team um, and others to get really great outcomes um, uh, through applications. You know, it was a real focus of pre-application meetings and, and pushing the envelope to not just accept um, medium density. Phil, it's never easy being a manager. I'm not going to feel sorry for you, but this is what you do. You have to be across many different fields. You might want to give our listeners some of your, the different teams you look after. You've got staff issues, which must be a nightmare with all these millennials. Uh, you've got motivation issues, morale, and you've got local politics, and you've got a, people ringing up to complain all the time about everything. How do you find resilience to weather all this turbulence? Um, Peter, I think resilience is a key strength of leaders and no so more than during the last two years of the pandemic. Um, how, do, how, do I, how do I weather the turbulence? Um, I think we need to be realistic and we have needed to be really realistic um, during the pandemic um, in terms of expectations and just be open and honest um, as leaders with our teams that we don't have all the answers. Um, I think we've done a great job really of remaining in, in a lot of industries, of remaining ag agile um, and successfully adapting to online operation, operations and providing the flexibility that, that's been needed um, to support people um, with all of that change. Um, we've done a lot on the fly and I think, um, you know, when, uh, and we haven't always got it right, but, um, you know, when we come to the next pandemic, we'll be so much better. So much yeah, Phil, there's not going to be another pandemic. <laughs> um, now, now I, I used to think, on uh, certainly not like the last one, um, I used to think everything was black and white, but not anymore. Discuss. Um, uh, I think in planning, it's always been about navigating the grey. Um, no, no site context are the same, no communities the same. Um, different things come out of consultation processes, the political climate um, and desires um, change from location to location, um, municipality to municipality. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think it, it's always in planning about how to best work with and navigate the grey. And do you think it's a part of ageing as well and maturing as well? Look, there might be some of there might be some of that in terms of you know idealist idealistic expectations that that might um, might carry with you for a while out of um, out of your early studies perhaps um, and maybe I'm just a little too old to remember that Peter. No, you're not that old, Phil. Now it's it's important to have an on-off switch, and this is about weathering turbulence. How do you manage this on-off switch? Yeah, I used to I used to manage it with a really with a fairly long commute. Um, so I I deal with all my difficult. You talk about you know the, the managing the complaints um, in local government, and you know there weren't early early in my time at Moreland. You know the first six months I felt like the complaint department, 
Um, there's always an element to that job that nowhere near as demanding as it as it has been um, since those early years. Um, but I deal with some of those um, during that commute time. Um, and, and I'd always make sure that, um, you know, when I came in the door at home, that was all behind me. Um, that, that analogy of the oxygen mask and the aeroplane analogy and taking care of yourself um, in order to take care of your team, um, I think is also really, really true of, of leadership. And you do need to look after yourself. You do need to model behaviour as much as you can. Um, I had a really good routine. Um, I found, you know, exercising in the morning was just too early for me and wasn't my thing. And by the, by the, by the evening, I was probably um, a bit tired after the commute. So I wasn't that regular, but I found my, um, um, my rhythm with, um, we have a gym across the road at Moreland. So, you know, a couple of times a, a week I could get in there and burn off a bit of energy and stress and refresh myself for the day. And found that was really, really working for me. Um, um, that all changed with the pandemic though. Um, Jess, I heard he was benching 120 Ks at one stage. I was, I was never, <laughs> I was never ripped, but I was fit. Um, but you're too uh, modest. Or a lot fitter. You're, you're too modest. Well, I think, if there's ever men of planning calendar, you might be in it. <laughs> yeah, not going to happen. But um, yeah, um, I guess managing through through pandemic, that's all all changed. The hours did get a lot longer, and that fell away for some time. Um, but getting back to running, getting back to you know taking taking time out and decent decent um, decent walks, etc., um, and just getting a change of scenery. I mean, being in an office where I look out at um, gum trees and um, in the morning I move around the house and get a bit of a glimpse of a bay view compared to my windows, windowless room um, back in back in Coburg um, probably also doesn't hurt too much either. And, Phil, do you think it also helps not living within the municipality that you work in? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that's separation. Um, so you're not reminded of things potentially Yes and no, perhaps. Um, I did actually, my wife and I were up in Malden a couple of weeks ago um, and I had that very experience of um, some of the key, a uh, couple of key people from um, from one of our residents association walking down, walking down the street as we're having lunch and I thought, well, that doesn't happen to me every day, uh, where it certainly would if, um, if I lived in the same municipality and got caught at the supermarket, etc. Phil, there's a bit of criticism of planning regulations that we have very high expectations, but, you know, very poor, I won't say, well, I'll say poor delivery systems. Should we temper expectations? Is there a need to um, focus on what we can do well rather than trying to, to, to do everything? And do you think there's, uh, and I, I'm saying that because we, we're about to enter a period of, I think some austerity. Um, we need to use our resources wisely. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah. Look, it's a tricky question, isn't it? Because I don't think we'd ever want to stifle the ambitions to do things better and to learn from mistakes of the past um, and to get better outcomes. And I think that's what's um, you know, motiva motivated me throughout my career and kept me at Moreland where we can innovate. Um, but at the same time, it's been a constant battle to, well, what can we do away with? Um, and, you know, if we're going to take on this extra amount of, of work, then how do we best resource it? Um, so you've just got to be really innovative in, in always asking that question. Um, and always looking at ways that you can you can reduce the burden. Um, so an example of that um, for Moreland has been simple things over the years of um, building in greater exemptions, um, building in um, um, incorporated documents to heritage overlays to do away with a lot of things that don't really add value so that we could keep on top of um, um, other ambitions. Um, more recently, it was looking. I think one of the one of the real innovations of of the past couple of years was looking at um, use of fixed smart for two dwelling development. And Peter, you're probably old enough as I am to remember. You know, my first year or so 
um, well, actually, no, it was a, as a student planner um, at Broombank, um, the driving, for me, it was driving out to new subdivisions on the edge of Melbourne and seeing that every corner lot had two dwellings on it before any of the single dwellings occurred because there was a, um, there was a, a code which allowed two dwelling development and uh, that was uh, clause thirteen M, uh, Phil. And yes, I, 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 won't, I won't. I won't doubt you on that. Um, but yeah, I mean that 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 was an example of where this, I, I can't speak to the outcomes that were achieved from from those days. But you know, certainly there was a streamlined approval process that the develop that the development in, industry could respond to um, quicker than. Um, you know, single single dwelling development, which was really, really interesting. Um, so for Moreland, with all the growth that we've had, all the high density applications, the time, effort and energy and time best spent is on um, the more challenging developments of five or six dwelling medium density or above and the high density development. Whereas the dual occupancies, for the most part, we'd sort of knocked into shape um and um you know seeking to deliver two dwellings on on um on lots um for the most part was was um, the least complex of our application so we we're taking it to a new level but we also wanted to ensure if if we're providing that that support to development to the development industry we did want to get better outcomes from that so um we we developed a, a VIXMARC clause that provided that you'd have to meet all res ESD ambitions, you'd have to be fully compliant with clause 55 and you would need to um, deliver accessible housing, which was, you know, from our feedback, one of the areas that um, one of the gaps really in, in terms of delivery of better quality development um, in the municipality and meeting those local needs. So there was an opportunity there for the development industry to respond, um, design dwellings that were compliant rather than the game that we often play, which is um, because of the potential delays in the system, because of the potential to be taken to VCAT, um, the, there's, a, there's a build in of, or a pushing the envelope because there is no incentive to fully comply um, and meet those standards. So it was trying something new. Um, it wasn't without its detractors, um, but really pleased that, um, through the panel hearing process that gained support of the panel. Um, probably some of the queer, some of the questions in relation to that proposal is the ability to under, undertake a complete assessment within 10 days. I think that's absolutely possible if you've got a well-prepared application. And so the incentive was that the, the application had to be well-prepared, had to be a complete application to qualify for that stream. Um, and of course, the other near and dear um, consideration um, for us here in Melbourne is third party notice and appeal. So you're getting to that debate of, well, if it's fully compliant, the benefit of notification um, and the benefit of a review process. So it was pretty innovative, pretty challenging. Um, we, we were held up at DELP for 12 months and a debate of the use of the VPPs and was it at the appropriate tool? And probably one of the other concerns um, professionally that bounced around the department was, would this be such a successful tool that it would lead to more application, more council seeking to, to, to follow this path um, and more applications um, looking to be two dwellings rather than three dwellings and, and affect the amount of um, medium density infill within our, within our suburbs. So, so, so you're pointing out to the difficulties of promoting reform in a pretty simple exercise, the difficulties of changing things. And that's one of the problems that, that planning is criticised for because it's so hard to make innovations. Um, the inertia in the system is, you know, just carries forward. That's the way we've done it. That's the way we're going to do it. Just a quick answer on that one. Yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's certainly challenging. Um, and then add to that, um, you know, if a proposal then breaches across election cycles and you've taken a council council on a journey of, um, you know, is this, is this a proposal that we think is worth pursuing? Um, if it is worth pursuing, um, 
What do we need to do to make it more palatable? Um, what are some of the benefits that could come out of that to outweigh some of the some of the, the disbenefits, et cetera? Um, so yeah, the challenges of political system and and working through um, working through innovation is definitely real. Um, it doesn't mean though that you you shouldn't have a crack um, and strive for those better outcomes in my view. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And Phil, in terms of um, going back to that point about, um, you know, the push that you're seeing within Moreland around higher densities, what are some of the issues uh, in your view that you think don't actually get enough attention? I'm thinking things like loneliness and isolation and those sorts of things. I think we'll learn a lot about that just through um, through the pandemic and um, an and evaluation of, of, of feedback from apartment dwellings. Um, the, I mean, one of the gaps that Moreland um, again, I don't want to more blow Moreland's trumpet, but I will. But Moreland produced the first apartment design code um, and also the first policy for high density development um, in Melbourne as a response to what we're experiencing with, with that quality of development and what we thought um, could lead to better outcomes. Um, we were la- Because we'd gone far enough down a process with our design code um, before the state brought brought in its own. We were able or have been able to keep um, within our planning scheme a control in relation to outlook from apartments and building separation between apartments, which is something that the statewide um, code um, has yet has yet to do. Um, I think that I. Th- I think that's definitely valuable. Um, we've we've seen um, one of our current affairs shows here in Melbourne, unfortunately, pick a Moreland development um, of one of the early ones that didn't have that separation um, between apartments and didn't have that outlook. Um, Phil, it's I just pretty intensive, to... though, isn't it, to yeah. to actually be doing planning assessments? You know, I feel for the planners who are now measuring the sizes of kitchens and dining areas and um, et cetera, which just weren't a factor really in, in, um, in my career, um, but certainly, de- you know, are delivering better quality and really brought home during the pandemic where people, you know, have been living in very small spaces with husband and wife trying to both be on Zoom calls or, um, or yeah. Well, well, that's if they're part of the laptop class. Um, Phil, not many, not everyone could do that. Um, during the lockdowns, but I, I, I just I just want to ask the question. You know, like planning is about good design and about solving solving problems. Is there any chance that we can design, you know, planning and and architecture can design to battle the dominance of the screen in everyone's life? How, how do we get people off the screen and I don't know uh, into more friendly spaces? It's a it's a question without notice, but you I, know, thought you, I thought you were talking about overlooking screening. I was like, yes, no. this is a great question. <laughs> so, sorry, Jess, it's one of my one of my dopey questions that I've been pondering about. Uh, but you know, the the screen has the the computer screen, the phone screen has just <clears throat> completely dominated people's lives, and I think to for the most part to the detriment. Has planning got is part of the solution to that? Do you think, or is it? beyond planning and you might say it's beyond planning I don't know any thoughts um look perhaps it is beyond planning I think we've all experienced screen fatigue over the last two years so fully appreciate um appreciate where you're coming from um on the other side um you know we we digitized all our services and moved away from paper Thankfully, you know, a, a good maybe four or five years be, before the pandemic. Um, and there's a part of me that misses the, the paper and the loss of skills of young planners of how to, how to fold a plan so it fits neatly in a manila file and, and those days. Your wardrobe, your closets must be very good, Phil. I've still got a collection of stamps um, for those paper-based plans, et cetera. Um, 
but I'm I'm actually missing um, the ability, and hopefully we'll be back back in the office. But one of the things that we needed to do to really make that work is planning involves a lot of collaboration and bringing people together to be able to look around those look at those plans. So we had large screens in each of our in each of our offices, and I realise you know we haven't we we don't do that now. We just look at smaller screens. And, and try and talk over Zoom at the same time to see if we're seeing and share, and share plans on a much smaller screen. So, um, yeah, maybe it's something about the nature of strength, um, screens, the nature of um, being able to collaborate in a workplace that we're really missing rather than, rather than the size of screens, perhaps. Well, it's not natural for us to be apart, Phil. That's all I'll say. Sorry, yeah. you, yep. know, you know, let this... Staying apart keeps us together, rubbish. I'm glad that's it gone. But sorry, Jess, over to you. No, I was just going to say, um, it sounds like that book that I have recommended a couple of times now, Peter's starting to rub off on you about screen time and reducing screen time and going back to some of the paper-based systems that we previously had. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've um, I've really been getting into physical books again, um, Phil. So you probably haven't had the benefit of listening to a couple of our more recent podcasts where I've been recommending this book, um, Stolen Focus. So, um, yeah, I've really been finding that useful kind of going back to the paper-based system, um, not saying that everything needs to be paper, but just certain things where you really need to focus in on something. It's I'm just finding it much, much easier. I just I think the screen is really, really difficult, um, particularly I, I'm a speed reader naturally, and um, I find now in particular and maybe it's because I haven't been um, at work for a little while because I've been on mat leave but as soon as I go onto a screen my eyes just they just flicker around on the screen too much now it's almost like I'm um, speed reading on steroids it's it's, it's crazy <laughs> so I'm finding actually going back to paper um, is is definitely benefiting my focus um, yeah then getting away from the screen is is certainly helping so yeah. um, anyway that's by, by the by how are the grads of today different to your generation of grads when they first emerged? Um, I think I'm amazed with probably the tech savviness of not only graduates, but, you know, my own teenage kids and just how much faster they are. So maybe that's about me and, and my age cohort. Um, but, you know, really tech savvy, really self-confident, um, very clear expectations of their own expectations and learning. Um, and their own motivations, I find, um, which is really great, which is really great, but also, you know, challenging um, a, a, as a leader to be able to feel, fulfil those expectations and continue to stimulate and provide growth and, um, and development. And we probably, um, you know, I've been hearing about the phenomenon of flight from organisations once we got out of lockdown and, and once things changed up pandemic it's probably something um that's already occurred i think for many planning departments where um coming back from from delp and then my stint in the exec role at moorland um for the last five months we've had a real um a big a bigger wave of turnover than we've had in a very long time and maybe that's something around having a young dynamic team with lots of opportunities um, you know, there's also been lots of opportunities at Delp as well, but when you can't control um, your own movement or um, um, a lot of things in your life as, as um, we've found, then the one thing you can make choices about is, you know, the opportunity for, um, for, for a new career so, um, or a change in your career or changing your, change your job. Um, so I think we're witnessing, witnessing a lot of, a lot of that as well. Mm. Um, you know, when, when I first started in Moreland, we, we weren't an employer of choice. Um, the, the system was somewhat out of control. Um, and, um, you know, planners were, um, slaves to that system and, and really just accepting of, of, um, the constant complaints, which I hadn't experienced at the city of Melbourne, being much more on top of on top of the work, but um, you know that that's changed though, and uh, I think you know now we are somewhat of an employer of choice um, because of the work that we do and because of the organisation that we are, and 
um, and the ambitions of both the organisation and council. So we're fortunate to be able to attract and continue to, to attract talent. Um, uh, now, now, Phil, I'll just, I'll just butt yeah. in here. I mean, you're blowing up Moreland's trumpet too much, I think, Jeff. But uh, that's not what you're here for, Phil. You're here to answer questions honestly, not uh, pump up your organisation. But, <clears throat> you know, something you said earlier about you had you were out of work for a number of months. Um, I remember, Jess, when I was started, I, I, I also started in recession and I had a wall of, uh, in my bedroom, Phil, something you be interested in um, all those years ago, I had a wall of all the rejection letters I got for going for jobs and so did all my mates. So, it, you know, it's easy for people to move around jobs at the moment, but, you know, when times get tougher, it's a bit harder. Agreed? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. The, the, <laughs> um, he, he obviously didn't have as many rejection letters as you, Pete. Oh, Jess, that, now you're, you're being very harsh, right? <laughs> that, like you've had, you know, <clears throat> anyway, we won't go there, Phil. We won't squabble. Um, but but also, but you know. My experience was probably one more of the jobs just weren't there. Like <clears> I said, you know, it was move up to the country or um, after studying your planning career, find find another job. And I think that happened for um, quite a lot of graduates who moved into different areas um, at, at that particular time of recession. We, we haven't seen that for, you know, many decades. Now, now uh, Phil, leadership, natural or learnt? Any thoughts? Uh, I do think, you know, there are those natural leaders um, and those that have, you know, gravitated to, to leadership, you know, for, throughout their life. I think for the most of us, though, it's a it's a learned skill and it's something that you develop. You know, it's not uncommon for many people to be promoted, um, particularly in, in the past, for the technical skills and and um, develop develop the leadership leadership skills. And I also think it's constant. Um, you know, it's a constant practice of learning and changing and adapting um, to you know to to, to needs. Of, um, of of the organisation and and needs of those that report to you. And Phil, you started at Melbourne, and um, Jess, you didn't know that I started at Melbourne as well. But um, Phil can remember all the things he worked there. I, I can't remember much about my time at Melbourne. But what would you tell your former self on your first day of work there, Phil? Um, what would you say to the young I, Phil Priest? It's it's interesting. No, actually, actually, Jess, I remember the early Phil Priest, the young Phil Priest. Yeah, I think that's where we we first crossed paths, and it was probably a you know a, sh a shy kid from that from the western suburbs. Yeah, you still gave me a very hard time, Phil. I remember many <laughs> for many years. Oh, I want to know. Started. I want to know, Phil, about um, what you thought about Pete. I know we'll we'll move on. <laughs> and uh, what would you say to your former self that uh, on your first day at work, Phil? Well, you know, I I commenced with no particular ambitions of management or leadership or been part of executive teams um, but what I'd probably tell myself would be to you know trust my own judgment and back myself I think you know early in my career um, I, I needed to prove to myself to gain my own confidence of uh, you know my practice as a planner um, and probably not to underestimate the importance of relationships so I think you know early in my career um, I probably you know I was particularly task focused um and um i probably took for granted um maybe the young peter jewel or um you know the 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 importance of relationships and and uh, you know coaching and mentoring and and assistance that that can give you a great career um yeah so that's probably what i tell myself don't don't um um oh well to recognize the importance of that beyond the technical when starting out and are there any quotes that you live your life by? Um, probably my working life. The, the one that the team and um, as part of my spiel with, um, with planners starting out with us is, is um, one of, you know, we're facilitators, not regulators, um, that the planning, planning schemes are there um, to provide a process and to, to look at outcomes, but we should be constantly looking 
Um, and the Act requires us to look at facilitating outcomes um, rather than rather regu regulating a system. Um, so that's near and dear to me. Um, the other part of, of probably that spiel is, you know, if you've got 30 planning applications or 40 planning applications on your desk as a young planner, um, each one of those, whether it's a um, multi-million dollar project or whether it's their backyard extension is probably the most important thing in, in that particular per person's life. And, you know, to always have that, that um, empathy for applicants. Um, the other one probably is, you know, have a crack. It's okay to experiment. It's okay to take risks, calculated risks and learn from those. Um, I think that's proven itself time and time again for me. And I love that, you know, about, about the, the job and the role um, that, you know, we can, we can try new things. There's always something to learn, always something to have a go at. Very wise and very refreshing, I'd say. Um, it's really nice to hear those sorts of words coming from um, someone at your level, Phil, because obviously um, that starts to permeate through the culture of your team. And um, yeah, that's really, really good to hear. And oh, um, Phil, how do you refresh and relax? Are you a surfer? Um, no, no, I'm not down on the coast because of that, but I do, I do have a boat and I do enjoy most things around water. Although, look, I do have a surfboard, but I wouldn't call myself a surfer. It's something I have a go at every now and again. Um, but um, yeah, certainly boating, um, fishing, snorkeling, water sports, water skiing, um, I really enjoy with the family. Um, and uh, probably typical things, you know, I, I don't mind going for going for a hike. Anything that gets you out of uh, out in nature after you've um, you know been in been in an office environment all all week um, is top of my to do list. Um, and my other passion is classic cars, so I can be found around um, those classic car shows or historic motor racing at um, Phillip Island or or, or Winton. Um, has, has kept my interest for many years now. Um, also love to travel. So, um, you know, with each of my kids, I've, when they're about that age of um, 15 and 16, this might be more a reflection on um, uh, my partner being more of a homebody, but I did a trip with each of my kids and, and it was really one of the best things I think I've done as a, as a parent um, and really rewarding for me because it was wherever they wanted to go. So. You know, my my eldest daughter was um, was studying Renaissance art, and you know wanted to go to wanted to go to um, Italy, and we ended up you know going to Florence and and um, getting absorbed in that whole Renaissance thing. But then also um, you know combined that as a as a broader broader Europe trip. My my son loves everything about the US, so um we i got to experience some great cities in the us and also 13 national parks over an extended trip there um and my other daughter she she um she doesn't have the same passion for planes and flights um but she wanted to um spend time in australia and so we went to the top end and traveled to the top end together and through kakadu and then back throughout back queensland on a, on a four-week trip so you know that really I really like traveling. I really like experiencing new places and, and different cities. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, now we've come to the, the, the easy bit in the podcast interview, <laughs> Phil. So you can stand down. You don't need to be on your guard anymore. Um, something you've read, seen, oh, this is podcast extra or culture corner. Something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that you think might be of interest to our listeners? I don't know if it will be of, of interest, but... Um, oh, what we, we, we only want things that are interesting. Come <laughs> well, it might be of interest what, to what are you some. doing to us? <laughs> it might be of interest to some, but um, it's probably been more escapism for me. Of I found myself lost on YouTube and, um, and um, really looking at um, getting away um from it all and one of the youtube um series that that i follow is um a couple um who chose to jump in a in a fairly small boat really um and put a 80 gallon drum in the front of this open deck boat with a center console and travel from the likes of cairns great barrier reef right up to the top of australia um thinking it would be a two-month exercise what's and ended called? up in a four-month exercise 
Yeah. What, what's it called, Phil? It's called Back, Back to Basics um, is, is the YouTube channel, but it's the, a particular adventure that they did as part of that, um, which is just shows you the, um, the, the amazing natural beauty of this, of this country that we live in, but also, and some of the really untouched things that you'd never get to experience, um, but, but these two did. Um, but it also, you know, has elements of the what are we doing to the planet and the, and the uh, amount of waste and plastic that's, that's, you know, washing up on, on some pretty remote parts of what's a spectacular country. Um, and then lately, they've, so they did that last year and that was my, captured me during COVID. Um, and now the, they've taken that same boat across the other side of the country and through the Kimberley and um, finding, you know, ancient Aboriginal rock art in really remote and beautiful parts of this country. So um, that's taken my interest of late. Um, the other thing, you know, being um, working through a pandemic is I've had a lot more time for gardening, a lot, lot more time for growing my own food. Um, and being able to water it rather than long hours in the office and, and not getting time to wash up. Um, so I've been enjoying that, a bit of the, the fruits of your own, your own labour. Um, so I've got a great crop of chilies at the moment, Pete, and capsicums and, oh, oh, and zucchini. We should make, make some chilli sauce together, Phil. Um, and, and, and Jess, something, some podcast extra from you, not some book, maybe? No, I don't have a book today. Because um, I'm still going on the last one, <laughs> but I'm going to also copy um, Phil's on gardening there. So I've been um, tending to my English box hedges on the front of my house for a good couple of years now, and um, discovered Charlie Carp, which is a wonderful fertilizer, and um, they're doing great things now. They're finally finally joining up, and so starting to trim those and starting to get them into a proper head shape, which is fantastic and is a very cathartic thing to do at the end of the day. Um, so I've been really enjoying that. But um, the other thing, Pete, and I don't know if, if I've mentioned this previously on the podcast, but I've been um, the target of um, some parcel thieves over the last couple of months, and which is extremely annoying. And so if my parcel thief is listening, I'm watching you. Get, get a, get, just get a gun. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, they're, they're going to be incredibly disappointed or they should be very disappointed because, you know, I'm ordering huge amounts of baby clothes and baby things, which, you know, is probably of zero interest to anyone else. So I think they're going to be, they will have been extremely disappointed with everything they've stolen from me. But um, it's, it's got me thinking, I guess, more about, um, you know, the way that we are designing our apartment buildings. And I know um, the newer apartment buildings that we're seeing certainly do have um, parcel <clears throat> collection and um, storage areas um, in built, particularly in the lobbies of those buildings. Um, but it's certainly not something that we probably saw, you know, even five, five or more years ago. Obviously, that's a, that's a newer um, phenomenon um, coming out of COVID in particular. But um, I, I'd be very interested to know how apartment buildings are coping with that. And um, Certainly one of the things that I've uh, started using now is a parcel locker at my local Australia Post, uh, which has been fantastic. So recommendation there is to use a parcel collection locker. They're fantastic. You can avoid any of this, um, any, any of these parcel thieves because I've, I've heard from my local police station that there's huge amount of it going on at the moment. It's the people porch following. pirates, they're called, Jess. They the are. They're, they're following the posties into people's houses. They deserve houses. no mercy. It's, no mercy yeah, stealing anything from you. Now, Phil, are you doing something about that with a Jess doesn't live in an apartment. She lives in a house. But are you doing something about that for apartments to stop the porch pirates? No, that's, re that's really interesting. I guess the thing that we're particularly grappling with, although you know, we've really seen a drop in the apartment market in the year or two before COVID and then throughout COVID. Um, but I think we'll learn a lot um, in terms of... Um, the new phenomenon of build to rent, which you know can get can get finance, and the thinking that goes into build to rent apartment developments about communal spaces um, and better amenities um, through that development, and um, you know learning from that will hopefully take us into better better apartment designs into the future. The things that the things that we've been probably spending time on 
Um, and there are a few other models out there, um, like you know the the Nightingale development, which um, which we see a fair, uh, model which we see a fair bit of of Moreland and now, started. Now, just just explain that to our listeners, Phil. Nightingale. So Nightingale's a um, uh, a development um, form. I won't do this justice, but um, a um, a form of um, communal funded housing um, with a very clear social and environmental um, agenda, um, which got its name because the first development that they did was in Florence Street in Brunswick. Um, and have done a number of number of developments in Moreland and then throughout the country now, um, funded by pre-sales um, from um, owners um, looking looking at a common vision. And and you know some of the um, you know, experimental and constantly challenging better ways of providing better quality housing. So ESD uh, comes a part of that. But communal laundries on a roof for communal space. You, Great use of communal space, great use of vegetation, etc., um, for cooling our urban environment and making making use of roof space, recycled water. Um, it, yeah, we, um, we actually we actually interviewed uh, Jesse Hochberg or oh, Jesse oh, now, um, and I think it was PX. I'm just looking it up. PX seventy one, I think it was. So a little while ago now. So if our listeners want to know a little bit more about Nightingale um, and that model, you can go back and listen to um, PX seventy one, um, which will give you yeah, definitely do because it would so. give it much more, um, um, much more credence than than I could. But um, you know, That's the, a good summary. The, those models of of communal living, communal laundries, reducing expense, and make, making better use of space. Um, I think uh, uh, something that we'll see more of. And the other challenge for apartment living, um, as we all look at new waste streams of glass collection and food and organics collection, is how to tackle that issue of reducing our waste um, into the future. And, um, you know, in a in a standard housing housing block, you've got the ability to mix your food waste, organic waste, with with your with your green bin garden waste, and and so many positive. Um, benefits that come out of the reuse of that organic waste rather than it going to landfill. Um, how do you tackle that problem in apartments? And mm. uh, City of Yarra have done some interesting, interesting um, pilots of um, looking at dehydration, um, etc. Um, but that's a particular challenge, I think, for for apartments into the future. Uh, and Phil, we want we're almost at the end, but you know that that all relies on motivated residents and. I've experienced some of that firsthand and it, it can be a bloody nightmare if, if not everyone's into that stuff. But um, what, one thing about the residential apartment, uh, I, I noticed I was in an apartment the other day and I went downstairs to the storage lockers and, you know, everyone's got to have, each new apartment's got to have, I think, six cubic metres of storage. Is that right, Phil? Is it six? Um, four to six, Yeah. Okay. Interesting so, again, but yeah. And, and so I walked I walked around through all these corridors of storage and most people just store just junk. It's just it's just incredible. The waste. Um so, and I love your idea of going back to look at things and to tweak things. I love that, Phil. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess the other the other key challenge which um we need to tackle is the transport issue and our and our reliance and wedding. Um, ourselves to to cars, which is again something that Nightingale have looked at, and um, I think all on it, all in our urban and regional councils are looking at at that challenge. Phil, you're not taking away my Phil, you're not taking away my arranger. Now, <laughs> now, Jess, I've got a podcast extra, a little bit different to yours, which is a podcast called Yundamu, Yundamu which is uh, I'll just spell it Y. U E N D U M U, the trial, and that um, Phil, I don't know if you about, know about the. It's it's about a Northern Territory um, policeman who shot uh, an Aborigine when they were going when he was going to arrest him, and the policeman was charged with murder four days after the shooting, and it was at a very contentious political time uh, about eighteen months ago. And the podcast each day follows what happened that day in the trial. 
goes for about 20 minutes and it takes, it gives a fascinating insight into policing in remote communities and the difficulties there. There is a number of, you know, graphics and audio because all the police wear body cam now and the cut and thrust of the different experts in court. It is a fascinating uh, story that uh, for most of our listeners, most people in Australia live on coastal main cities and in the outback, it's a completely different country. And uh, this podcast talks about just the real difficulties our country has in, uh, in providing good, good living for people living in remote areas. So I would really recommend Yundamai or Yundamu, the trial. Uh, it's, it's, I, I can't wait for each episode. Any thoughts, Phil? Oh, it's super challenging, you know, having, having travelled to the Northern Territory and, and, and spent some time there. Um, yeah, we, we, we have some really sh- real challenges in this, in this country around social equity um, and culture. Um, um, so that does, that does sound fascinating, Peter. Well, well, on your long drives, Phil, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's fascinating. It's a very objective program and uh, it just shows that sometimes, uh, you know, nothing is black and white. I'll put it that way, but uh, yep. there you go, Jess. I hope that's of interest to you. Where do we listen to it, Pete? Is it Spotify? Uh, you can look it up anywhere. It's put out. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can put out, but it's, uh, it, it, it just talks of the, you know, the social problems we have and, um, and, and we forget about the most of the time. It's, it's not right, but um, there you go. Anyway, Phil, you've been a terrific guest. I knew you would be. And uh, for your photo for our website, we want you, uh, we want a photo of you in the gym benching. All right. So we might use that for the calendar, Jess. <laughs> It would be a shocking sight, particularly after two years of lockdown, Pete. Uh, we, 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 can, we can do some airbrushing, don't worry. We can do that. <laughs> well, thanks again, Phil, and thanks, Jess. Thanks, Thank Phil. you. Thanks, Pete.